Previously on Pardon Me. The president's misconduct goes to the heart of whether we can conduct a free and fair election in 2020. It's a scam. The president of the United States and using funds that were meant to help the Ukraine fight the Russians. Consider that his private ATM machine, I guess. You're trivializing impeachment. Do me a favor. Do you paint houses too? Article 1, abuse of power. The whistleblower wrote a false report. Article 2, obstruction of Congress. And I really blew it up when I released the transcript of the call. President Trump thus warrants disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. I said I want nothing and no quid pro quo. And we are here, sir, to present the truth to the American people. And if you don't know, now you know. The managers are complaining about lawyer lawsuits. It's not a day I hope America ever repeats. In the 1905 Swain trial, a senator objected when one of the managers used the word pettifogging. Senator James Risch, the Republican of Idaho, was the first lawmaker seen by Washington Post reporters to have clearly fallen asleep. A trial without witnesses is simply not a trial. You're not going to have a witness wand here. The framers built the Senate to keep temporary rage from doing permanent damage to our republic. I'm sure to hear abuse from the president and his supporters. Does anyone seriously believe that I would consent to these consequences other than from an inescapable conviction that my oath before God demanded it of me? And then you have some that used religion as a crutch. But, you know, it's a failed presidential candidate, so things can happen when you fail so badly running for president. The said Donald John Trump is hereby acquitted of the charges in said articles. And we were treated unbelievably unfairly. We need a firewall to keep partisan flames from scorching, scorching our republic. It was all bullshit. The Senate sitting as a court of impeachment stands adjourned, sine die. I hope we will look back on this vote and say this was the day the fever began to break. I hope we will not say this was just the beginning. And now, pardon me, season two. Second time around, just as wonderful with both feet on the ground. It's that. All right, I, I almost hate to interrupt that. But in fact, welcome to Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show, Season 2, Episode 1. God help us if there are a lot of episodes of this show. It's not going to be a good sign for the Republic. Episode 1, which I believe is called We Love You, You're Very Special. Now go home. Um, and we will be talking a little bit later on to Joanne Freeman, uh, who is a professor 
of History and American Studies at Yale. She, in particular, has explored the whole question of language, what we call things in situations like this. Toward the end, because we like to involve the arts, we will talk to Jill Solbule, award-winning singer, songwriter, guitarist. You know her well from this show. But we're very excited to begin here with Michael Gerhardt, who is the Burton Craig University Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina School of Law in Chapel Hill, memorably... During season one, he was one of the four expert witnesses brought to testify before the House about the nature of impeachment, the legal nature of impeachment. He's the author of seven books, including his new biography, Lincoln's Mentors, The Education of a Leader. Michael Gerhardt, welcome back to our show. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm grateful to be here. So, obviously, uh, as we are talking today, uh, yesterday, President Trump was impeached for a second time. There is no precedent really kind of at all for this. I'd like to just rely heavily on you for the exploration of two major legal questions. One of them has to do with the capacity of Congress to impeach a president when he's no longer sitting. The other will, I think, have to do with the question of the capacity of impeachment to impose such specific penalties as prohibition of holding the office again in the future. So let's begin with this first one, though, because it's it's of the moment and it's being brought up by a number of people who impose impeachment right now. The question of whether or not President Trump can be not impeached now, but tried and potentially convicted under impeachment if he is no longer the sitting president. Now, you've already uh, written about this. Uh, tell us uh, your thinking. Well, that's, of course, a, a big question that's facing Congress and the country right now. It's fair to say constitutional scholars are not united in the answer to that question. So some would take the position that the president is only vulnerable to impeachment and in conviction and removal and disqualification while he's in office. And once he leaves office, he has, in a sense, reached a safe harbor of becoming a private citizen again, and therefore is not vulnerable to impeachment. That has been a popular argument. I'm sure we'll hear it brought up in the Senate, if not in the news media. I've taken a different position. It's my view that the Constitution, first of all, doesn't have a time limit on when impeachment may be brought. Um, and it is also true that the president is subject to impeachment conviction and removal and disqualification if he commits an impeachable offense. But without a, any obvious time limit, limit that the Constitution imposes on when the impeachment may be brought, I think the thing to rely on are three precedents of, of the United States Senate. Three different times the U.S. Senate has impeached and proceeded with an impeachment trial against three officials who had already left office. And I think the Senate's going to rely heavily on those precedents, and that's going to perhaps govern the, the answer here, which is the Senate may proceed with an impeachment trial even after Trump leaves office. So one of the most colorful of those precedents would be William Belknap. He was the Secretary of War under Grant. He was caught up in a scheme of graft and corruption uh, and kind of with minutes or hours to go before his impeachment, he decided to, in fact, use the strategy of resigning. He allegedly, at least in some accounts, dropped to his knees in front of Grant, burst into tears and begged that his resignation be accepted, which Grant did. So what happened afterwards had happened to a man who no longer held that office. Maybe you can sort of elaborate on what other meaning we might derive from that. Well, I think you set it up very well. And so the reason, of course, why Belknap was trying to resign at that point was to avoid impeachment. But he didn't avoid impeachment. Uh, the House soon thereafter, even though Belknap was no longer in office, impeached him. 
And even though Belknap was no longer in office, the Senate proceeded with an impeachment trial and a majority of the Senate actually voted to convict him and not just remove him, but disqualify him. However, the minority in the Senate uh, had concluded not to convict him because a number of them were concerned that he, because he was no longer in office, he was no longer subject to impeachment. But the trial was the place where the senators could express themselves one way or another on whether or not impeachment, the impeachment trial still could have an effect on him. And there are two other precedents we could discuss. Quickly mention them, but before we do that, I just want to say, and you'll hear this later in the show, one of the fascinating aspects of this, this is a tremendous story, which I did not know uh, until I started reading for this particular episode. And there's all kinds of crazy things, including allegations by historians that Belknap's real problem was he had consecutively married two women who were big spenders and who kind of coaxed him into doing some of these things. But to me, the mind blower is that at that Senate trial, George Armstrong Custer was one of the people who testified against him because he said that one of the reasons that he lost was rifles, bad rifles that were that jammed easily, that were supplied somehow as a byproduct of this scam. Anyway, so you mentioned the two uh, other precedents very quickly. Sure. And and I think it's constitutionally significant that there, there are trials where these arguments are made the trials are not preempted because the person has left office. The first time a trial was held for somebody who wasn't in office anymore was the very first Congress in the United States. We oftentimes defer to the first Congress because many of the members helped write and ratify the Constitution. In that first impeachment, there was a senator named William Blunt, actually from North Carolina. He had been expelled by the Senate. Nevertheless, the House impeached him, and the Senate held an impeachment trial. And there, the number of senators refused to convict him again because he had left office, but there were a number of senators that voted to convict him as well. The third involves West Humphreys. That may be the best precedent, that, or that is the most analogous precedent. West Humphreys is a federal judge. He left his federal judgeship in 1861 to join the Confederacy as a, as a judge. One year later, the House impeached him, and the Senate proceeded with an impeachment trial to convict and remove him and disqualify him from federal service. The Humphreys precedent may be closely analogous to the current situation. Hey, one thing I quickly want to touch on, because we're, we're talking about Senate trials here uh, and the, the, what is needed to convict and remove is because this is getting repeated a lot. I just heard a, a senator, Senator Gillibrand, say this on the air that uh, they need 17 Republican votes. That's not strictly true, is it? It depends on what quorum is established at the beginning of the process. If there's a quorum of 90, they need 10 Republican votes. That's right. I think it's two thirds of the senators present. Mm-hmm. not two-thirds of the senators as a whole. So for those senators that think they can keep this from happening by leaving, I think they lower the number of senators that would be required to reach a conviction. Right. I mean, strategically, Mitch McConnell might decide that it is it benefits some of his senators not to go on the record about this, but it would be a very strange thing to do to absent yourself in a such a momentous decision. All right. So let me just ask you another question about this. And I think it applies both to the question of impeaching a president after his term of office and probably the next thing we're going to talk about, which is imposing a penalty that includes not allowing the same person to run again or to serve again. But before we get to that, are these questions which ultimately could conceivably find their way to the Supreme Court? In other words, if the lawyers for President Trump 
object to the whole process, or maybe I don't know who else would object to this process who would have standing. Is this something that would need potentially to be heard before we would know? No, I think the answer is clearly no, because the United States Supreme Court in 1993 unanimously ruled that challenges to the procedures used in trials are not matters that the Supreme Court ever issues an opinion on. Mm -hmm. Those are matters the Supreme Court said that the Senate has final authority to decide. And I think that will be equally true, whatever the Senate does with the impeachment articles sent over the most current articles against President Trump. So let's look at this other question. So it, it is not, in fact, really going to be possible for the Senate trial to remove, as mentioned in the Constitution, President right. Trump if he's no longer sitting. But one thing that they could attempt to do would be to prevent him from serving again. This is another thing where constitutional scholars seem a little bit divided on what's needed exactly. What's your take? I think the process has been clearly laid out in the Senate and the Senate rules and most importantly, the Senate practice. So the first thing is the president would have to be convicted by at least two thirds of the senators convicted of having done the engaged in the misconduct that is the foundation for the impeachment articles. Once convicted, then the president would be subject to the Senate's taking another vote on whether or not to uh, disqualify him. And it's been the Senate practice pretty much from the beginning that only a majority vote would be needed to impose the penalty of disqualification against him. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that only occurred to me this morning, and I'm, I don't know if anybody knows the answer to this. Could the Senate also, as part of that process, impose other penalties related to his post-presidency life? I mean, I don't think anybody wants to strip him of his Secret Service protection, but there's other things that they get. They get a pension. They get uh, offices and staff. They get a certain kind of medical coverage. Is it, I don't know, is a perfectly good answer, but is it possible, could it be within the purview of this process to take those things away? It might be, but let me just hasten to, to point out that, uh, as you just pointed out, when a president leaves office, he still occupies an office. He's in the office of ex-president. And so removal could be used to, in a sense, remove him from that office, which might include all those perks you just mentioned. I think it's harder to be confident of the answer because the perks that ex-presidents have, they have because of a subsequent law that Congress passed, the former President's Act. And that act is what gives the president these extra, or a former president, extra benefits so it's it's just not as clear that disqualification would rob him of those benefits. But if he's removed from the office of ex-president, then I think that technically means he's removed from everything that comes with it. All right. Well, I mean, that, yeah. So there's an entire law that governs yes. that. There's a post-presidency act. So I sort of leapfrogged over, I guess, the beginning question because I already know the answer to it, but maybe I should give you the opportunity to say it. First of all, back in, in 2019, you articulated what you understood about the basis for impeaching President Trump then. I assume you have no hesitation about the idea that he can be and probably should be impeached for what has happened now. I think that, yes, you'd be right about that. I don't think there's any question whatsoever that the president picked the time when he committed an impeachable offense. I think his months-long efforts to under, undermine the presidential election and outcome of 2020 and to get that overturned through one means or another, that was quite suspect to begin with. But then he unleashed a mob that rushed on Congress and didn't just break property, but left five people dead. And by the way, the very people 
that were voting on the impeachment in the House were the very people who were the ones that the mob was looking for. And so I think that the members of the House don't have to be educated about what happened on January 6th. They were there. They were either witnesses to it or were the objects of it. And so I think they can be confident in being well-informed about what to do in response to an attack. I think the president has to take responsibility for because the mob claimed to be doing it in his name. I'm going to ask you a question I think that's a little bit more directed at Michael Gerhardt, the human being, as opposed to Michael Gerhardt, the constitutional scholar, although not that those two things are dichotomous. But you met the mob early in a way, right? I mean, after your testimony, you were subjected to verbal abuse and harassment and I would imagine threats and slurs from the kinds of people who might have been the people who showed up on January 6th. Maybe you could just sort of react to that a little bit. I mean, did you feel on January 6th as though you were kind of seeing a kind of person you'd already met? Uh, I, I think the answer is yes. Um, and, you know, I testified way back in the Clinton impeachment proceedings and there were uh, members of Congress who pressed me hard, but they were not personal attacks. They pressed me hard on my scholarship and what I was saying. And I think that's fair game. And there were no, there was no hate mail of any kind that uh, greeted me when I got back to my office. But when I testified in 2019, there were hundreds of emails and even letters and postcards that not only sort of demeaned me, but threatened my family. And uh, one uh, was very striking that actually was incredibly meticulously put together that was almost like a, the kind of card you get on Mother's Day. And what you do, you open it up, and the, the photographs of me and uh, Noah Feldman, who's Jewish, and Pam Carlin is Jewish, and I am also Jewish. And what it said was the Nazis had the right answer, which was Oof. to exterminate us. And by the way, some of those people who broke into Congress were wearing T-shirts that basically had the same message, exterminate the Jews. And so it's hard not to take that personally. It's part of my job to try and educate people. It's part of my job to try and rise above all the, the heckling and the bad arguments. But when my family is the focus of it, as they were, we got protection from local police and others because there was a risk even then that some people might come out and harm my family, which, of course, is the most important thing in the world to me. Last question, I guess. And once again, this isn't a constitutional question at all. But even listening to the montage that we played at the beginning and listening to uh, Senator McConnell's words, you know, talk, he talks about how the, how the Senate's sort of supposed to be some kind of firewall against temporary scorching anger and all this kind of stuff. And that, you know, he hopes that we'll, the people will look back on that day as the day the fever broke and all that stuff. I mean, there's a part of me that's going, wow, if you guys had done your job, well, five people who are dead would probably be alive right now. But, you know, I don't know what how you feel, but listening to that now, it, it really does feel, uh, it's a very strange sensation, right, to sort of listen to the rationales that were offered at, back in early 2020. I think that's right. And one thing we know is the fever didn't break. And here's the other critical thing to understand. It's not the Democrats' fever. No, Democrats didn't make President Trump constantly contest the election. And for no good reason. The president kept sounding what we call the big lie, the big lie that he won in a landslide. And he was sounding that big lie with, in the hopes that his supporters would accept it and act on it. And we can just look to his words and his actions to be confident that he wanted his supporters to act on it, to intimidate Congress. And even when the president understood that his own vice president 
was had people roaming the halls of Congress looking to hang him. The president did nothing. The president seemed to enjoy it, in fact. And that's the reason he just got impeached. All right, Michael Gerhardt, first of all, I am very, very sorry that you and your family ever experienced the thing that you described here on the show today that should never, never, ever happen. Michael Gerhardt is the Burton Craig University Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina School of Law in Chapel Hill, the author of seven books, including his new biography, Lincoln's Mentors, The Education of a Leader, and one of the people who originally testified on the parameters for impeachment before the House. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. We'll talk about a language, uh, the words that are used and what they mean. We're back. This is Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show, Season 2, Episode 1. We are sort of like a, a reunion, too, from the first season. A lot of the people who are on the show today, well, both of the first two guests were on the original season of Pardon Me. And Jill Sobiel, who's going to wrap things up today, was supposed to write the theme song for the, <laughs> the first season. And she was in the middle of a project, and we just never got around to it. And then it turned out it was good we didn't have a theme song for complicated reasons. Anyway, Joanne Freeman is the class of 1954 professor of history and American studies at Yale University the co-host of the American History Podcast Backstory. Her most recent book is The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War. Violence in Congress. Imagine that. Maybe we'll have time to just quickly reference that. But we want to begin by talking, Joanne, to you about language. And before I even have you get going, we're going to play President Trump addressing his supporters near the White House on January 6th, shortly before they, but not he, walked to the Capitol. Republicans are constantly fighting like a boxer with his hands tied behind his back. It's like a boxer. And we want to be so nice. We want to be so respectful of everybody, including bad people. And we're going to have to fight much harder. And Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a, a sad day for our country. Because you're sworn to uphold our Constitution. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. So, Joanne Freeman, first of all, welcome back to our show. Thanks for having me. Just what do you hear there in the clip? In other words, uh, as the Senate trial considers the question of incitement, some of that will be there in the words spoken by President Trump on January 6th. What do you look for in that situation? Well, I think some of the trickiness of this particular moment is if you think about how people talk about politics in the United States generally, there was a pretty long tradition of using martial references, right? We talk about campaigns and battles and, and cores, and we talk about weapons of, even my first book actually is about weapons of political combat. So we, we tend to talk about politics in that way, but it's one thing to use that kind of language and another thing when it's framed differently. And so some of what I think is happening regarding January 6th is that there was a long lead up to that in which at a variety of different moments the president clearly endorsed physical violence in some way. And so 
you know, I suppose one could point at individual words within those comments and say, well, you know, that word didn't necessarily encourage violence. But the fact of the matter is the message was clear. And during another part of that speech, when he basically said, march up to the Capitol and I'm coming with you, he made it pretty clear he wasn't speaking in a general kind of a way. So I suppose the, the short answer to your question is I hear in those words ambiguity but I also hear in those words a threat. Right. And and I, I don't know how the Senate will choose to construe these things. But I mean, it seems intuitive that, you know, when you listen to all those words, you listen to the other words about how, you know, you won't you won't accomplish your goals by weakness. You need strength. You need this. You need this. It's fair to kind of match that up with what happened, too. Uh, or maybe it isn't fair. I mean, maybe President Trump's argument would be, how could I possibly know those people would interpret what I was saying as a basis for the kind of action they took? Well, <laughs> one can claim many things. Um, <laughs> I think I think it it's hard to say that given the events of that day, given the multiple signs that his supporters have shown even up till this point that they're prepared to do that, given the way that white supremacists have become bolder and louder and have been more interactive with and responsive to this ongoing lie about the election, if you're ongoing in your complaint that the election was rigged and that it's a crime and democracy is under attack and something must be done, that's not just plain rhetoric if it's framed in a certain way. And I think this is that framing. So let's talk about another kind of language, which is the kind of language that the press, uh, members of government and, and others are using to describe the behavior of the people who got inside the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Words like rebellion, insurrection, sedition, uh, they've all been kind of tossed about. They do have specific meanings as a historian. First of all, what are the right and wrong choices for that? <laughs> That's a tricky question. I would say that that as a historian, when I when I managed to um, put my historian hat on and take off my horrified American hat, mm -hmm. some of what is interesting to me, and it, it happened as soon as January 6th began unfolding, is that people really didn't know how to refer to it. That we haven't seen this sort of thing before as far as an attack on the government in this way. And immediately you could feel in what you saw people writing and on on television and various media formats too that was it was it a riot was it an insurrection was it a rebellion was it terrorism was it a attempted coup you know there, there have been endless things that have been proposed and there's a logic in many of them um i actually initially protested against the use of the word storming the storming of the capital because i think it makes something that was not at all pretty and romantic sound somewhat pretty and romantic, you know, like the mm -hmm. storming of the Bastille. But the, the larger point here is it really matters what words we use because they are going to frame how we respond to what happened. And a great example of this is there was a statement. I want to say that it was from the White House. It was a government statement that described the events on January 6th as protest. Mm -hmm. Not as any of the other things that I said, but as protest. Now, that's an interesting word choice. You know, mm -hmm. protest is not attacking a, the government and trying to overthrow an election. Protest is marching in the street. Protest is, you know, even sometimes protests become violent in the street. But what we saw on January 6th is in a totally different scale. It's not simple protest. It was an attack. And so, I, you know, in that case, I think that's a dangerous word to use. You know, I think 
many of the words that I just said you could totally justify. And I myself have sort of bounced back and forth between different kinds of words. All of the words I'm choosing to use, though, make it clear that this was a physical attack on the U.S. government, an assault on democracy, with the intention of overthrowing an election and possibly causing harm to people involved in counting the votes. And that, you know, <laughs> that scale is kind of off the charts. So words like terrorism or attempted coup, they're not impossible to apply to this situation. They're not unheard of. This is this was a remarkably severe, stunning kind of a development that I don't think anyone, historian or anyone else, really anticipated seeing in the United States play out in quite this way in the U.S. Capitol. I just want to say that in the in the interval where Joanne was talking, we've just decided to sell horrified American hats from our website for twenty nine ninety five, and you'll get some kind of royalty check out of that. I, I think it's only, <laughs> only fair. You know, historically, certain words... I mean, first of all, just to go back to what you said about the January 6th speech by Trump, anybody can say anything, anybody can claim anything. And people historically have claimed, I mean, from about 1796 through about, I don't know, 1813, the word sedition was just flung around all the time, right? There was an Alien and Sedition Act. Uh, there were the seditious libels. I mean, we're here in Connecticut, home of the Connecticut libels, or some of Jefferson's judges were interpreting speech by newspapers and ministers as, as seditious. Is sedition a word that actually has a meaning that we can pin down, or is it more of a characterization that one chooses to make? Obviously, you know, in the 1790s, somebody thought you could actually say, this is sedition, here's the law. Right. I mean, sedition has a specific meaning about essentially attacking or unseating in some way or another the government. You know, there is on John Adams' presidency, the Sedition Act, and that act explicitly made it illegal to criticize the government, right? That was deemed sedition. So, you know, at the time, they justified it by saying, well, we're, we might be at war with France, and if that's the case, then we have to really take care of national security, and people shouldn't be downplaying and attacking the government. Now, of course, they also were Federalists in power who were trying to shut up Republicans at a moment when it seemed as though they could pull that tool out of their tool case and, and really crush the opposition. But sedition had a meaning. I think the problem with the word now, and I, th I think we're at a moment, in a way we're at a, a, a sort of mega crisis of words. The words that have been flying around in recent years and, and are flying more quickly now, like communism, socialism, fascism, authoritarian, you know, I, one could keep going on at the words that people are throwing around, often without meaning. And I think for many people, sedition doesn't have a concrete meaning, even though it is a concrete charge. Gets back to the point I made before, which is the words that we choose, um, however legally appropriate they may be, they're also going to frame a narrative. And at a democracy, and particularly in a democracy that's feeling unsettled like ours right now, the framing narrative is going to matter a lot. All right. We're going to stop there. But I mean, if you want to revisit the times, I mean, the unhappy times prior to January 6th, 2021, when Congress was a place of violence, you might consider acquiring Joanne Freeman's most recent book, The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress on the Road to Civil War. She is professor of history and American studies at Yale University, co-host of the American History Podcast, Backstory. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And we're going to bring back one of your favorite. I have no idea what it's one of your favorites. It just seemed like something I could get away with saying. 
We're, we're going to bring back one of our favorite things about the first season of Pardon Me. It's a feature we call Factoids. It's voiced by Kion Wolf, who was with us for many years and then left to seek her fortune in the big city. But she came back to do this. <laughs> William Belknap was a war secretary in the Grant administration and was accused of graft and knickbacks. On the day of the impeachment vote, Belknap tried to stave off disgrace by getting down on his knees, bursting into tears, and resigning. President Andrew Johnson was impeached in 1868. He was impeached only that one time. He was not impeached twice. Someone wrote the word Trump on the back of a Florida manatee by scraping algae off the animal's back to form huge letters. Harming or harassing a manatee is a federal crime, punishable by up to a year in prison and a $50,000 fine. The House impeached William Belknap even after Grant accepted his resignation. At his Senate trial, George Armstrong Custer testified that Belknap's scam resulted in his troops having crap rifles that jammed easily. The PGA of America has canceled plans to hold a major golf tournament at a Trump Organization golf course in New Jersey next year, citing concern over the organization's brand. There's never been a riot of people seeking to overturn the results of a PGA tournament. The Political Action Committee for the greeting card company Hallmark asked Republican Senators Josh Hawley and Roger Marshall, who voted to overturn the election results, to return all of the committee's campaign contributions. Hallmark's Wildflower Apology Friendship Card, which reads, I know I've disappointed you and I wish I could take it back, retails for $3.59. William Jefferson Clinton was impeached just the once. No president, judge, or other federal office holder has ever ever, ever been impeached twice. Ever. I'm Kyone Wolf. This has been Factoids. And what we're going to do is a thing. First of all, because this thing, I have to say to you, this thing, this... <laughs> thing is not quite the right word, is it? This show, pardon me, another damn impeachment show. It just takes a lot more work than our typical shows. Not that our typical shows don't take a lot of work, but everybody has to pitch in extra. So both Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer, and Jonathan McPants have played uh, vital and instrumental roles uh, in creating the show today. And then Cat Pastor had to put up with the fact that we kept barking new orders at her. And you shouldn't bark at a cat anyway. So thanks to all of them for making this possible, making it sound great. Great to have Kion Wolf's voice back on our show too you should listen to audacious on saturdays and then also listen to pardon me well you just start listening to it so you probably don't have to but we will be on the air at noon if you're listening earlier in the week we're going to be on the air at noon on saturday if you're listening at noon on saturday this will seem like a very strange thing for me to bring up so all of that is true i have no idea whether there's going to be a pardon me season two episode two but it it kind of feels like there probably will have to be all right so in just a moment or two Hopefully, 
<laughs> because we are doing this live on Thursday. Hopefully, we are going to talk to Jill Silviel, singer, songwriter. And I should say, initially, we were talking, She, Jill and I were talking back and forth because she's a good friend of the show and a good friend in general. We were talking back and forth about the idea of maybe her writing a theme song for season one of Pardon Me. And that didn't happen because she was in Florida workshopping a play or something. It just didn't happen. But we, we wanted to get her involved in Pardon Me somehow. And we also do feel as though there is a song of hers, which we had to edit or expurgate slightly, that really kind of speaks to the mood that you saw, particularly in America on January 6th, and unfortunately are likely to see quite a few more times after that. It's called America Back. Let's hear some of that. Remember the Garden of Eden Before Eve hung out with that snake you could walk down the street, not worry about thieves. All the kids could go trick-or-treating. Then those foreigners started coming in, like the Germans in 1790. Then the Irish arrived, the potato blight. The neighborhood started changing. Life was better, we lived right. Life had a pale shade of white when they say we want our America back, our America back, our America back. When they say we want our America back, well, what the f do they mean? We are so excited to have with us Jill Sobule, the person who wrote that song and many other songs and who's joined the show. I mean, she probably Hello. has. You probably hold some kind of record for doing full shows with us uh, in studio, but of course, that is no more, at least for, for the nonce. Welcome, Jill Sobule. Hello, I'm so glad to talk to you. Well, I, I'm very glad to talk to you, too. And so, you know, I don't know whether you think that song is the right song to be playing uh, here on this date in 2021, or there's another song of yours. But, you know, obviously you were trying to encapsulate something in that song, and it's a something that we saw pretty vividly, I think, on January 6th. Tell me how you were feeling on that day. Holy moly. Well, I, I totally was not surprised. I mean, I'm one of those that is, you know, my friends say I have to stop doom scrolling. I mean, for years I've been following like the QAnon people and the <laughs> the far alt-right. And so I was not, you know, they, they were saying these things. I was not 
surprised one bit, but still it's shocking to see. It was so shocking to see. And, um, yeah. I, I do that, too. I had a parlor account simply because I wanted to oh, know me what, too. Yeah, you know. I had a parlor account, too. I know. Are we going to go to Gab? Where do we go next? I don't know. I think we probably do have to go to Gab. But, yeah, so you're a fellow parlor lurker. I'm a total parlor lurker. And I love, there's a podcast called QAnon Anonymous. They're so funny. And they follow the Q people. It's really a good podcast. So being not surprised but still shocked when you saw those. And then the ones that came out a couple days later uh, that the were incredible. And, and also, when, you know, as you know, in parlor, the you know that there there's there's a lot of stupidity like like the i love the people who expose themselves on their uh streaming by streaming it live like the baked alaska guy there's something so funny about that that they're bragging about it and then of course they get arrested a couple days later right you know and and you and i i think share a sense that one can interpret something as tragedy and something as comic, and it can be the same something. That there's a way in which the, the sensibilities that we naturally bring to something, which do, do include a sort of dark sense of humor, they, they, those never entirely go away, even when we're seeing something that shocks us, makes us want to throw up, whatever. Maybe you can say a little bit more about that. I mean, there's a way in which the song that we just played does both of those things. It brings up some outrageous and scary realities, but it's also kind of funny. Well, I, I, I think it's, to me, I remember being influenced by, say, John Prine, who had, when I was a kid, I remember listening to a song called Sam Stone, There's a Hole in Daddy's Arm Where All the Money Goes, about a Vietnam vet who came home a heroin addict. And there's, you know, it's this sweet little song, and then it's like it hits you in the gut. So I think sometimes we see the absurdity in it and we can laugh at it and we don't make light of it actually sometimes it just it, it makes it more intense if you ask me so I, I should have asked this in advance but you recently had a, a medical procedure that you weren't particularly secretive about i don't know whether it's uh, okay to, to bring oh, this yeah, up oh okay. yeah for sure so you had brain surgery and so i have this idea yeah brain surgery we should say it was for a tremor correct yeah yeah for essential tremor the last two years i started getting my hands started shaking you know little by little and and uh yeah it was just affecting my guitar playing and so and it's you know, I'm bored during COVID time, so I thought, why not have brain surgery? <laughs> so and what else? The worst thing that you can possibly do is suggest to somebody like Joel Solbiel the idea for a song. But I'm going to do that anyway. I'm going to suggest that you write a song directed, addressed to President Trump and his followers called, I had brain surgery, now it's your turn. <laughs> well, I did say, I wish I could, when I asked the doctor... When you put the little electrodes in my brain, I go, isn't there any way, come on, with the science, can I get some telekin is it telekinesis power <laughs> that Carrie had? Where I can, like, look at the the Trump signs that are still up in Beverly Hills and, and with my eyeballs, lasers come out and, and, you know, put them on fire? Or can I have the power to deprogram people? 
I'm trying. I'm, what, the one thing that I think I know you well enough to know is you actually said that to your doctor, didn't you? Yes, I did. <laughs> My doctor. Well, here's the great thing about the surgery yeah. is that you had to be awake while it was going on. Mm -hmm. So I brought my guitar with me and I played some songs and I entertained. Everyone said that he, he made a testimony and my doctor it was the best concert and entertaining operation he ever did. I'm here to please. That's, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the show must go on. Uh, and I don't think anybody ever, yeah, I don't think anybody ever laid it on the line quite as well as that. Well, we, we got about a minute left. I mean, I should, we should say, what are you going to do with this whole new found, found uh, uh, power that you've got? You unfortunately cannot make Trump signs burst into flame or cause people to think different thoughts, but uh, yeah. it must be good to have your, to be able to play guitar. With well, a, a little better. Confidence. And also people, you know, what? when I was playing, people noticed a little tremor that people would come up to me like, you seem really nervous. And I'm like, I'm not nervous. Or I remember someone said to me, I'd like to talk to you about your drinking problem. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. And and so uh, that person, of course, was a, a counselor at a fancy rehab center. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to, you know, for about a month and a half, I've been kind of not very motivated and just recovering. And now I got to get back into that mode of picking up the guitar and writing songs. You know what I really need? What? A procrastinatrix. Or an anti-procrastinatrix. So someone to sort of beat the procrastinating out of you, you're saying? Uh, someone that calls me up and says, have you, you, I want you to have something done in an hour and a half. I can and do if that. you don't, I don't know what the repercussions would be. But, okay. You know. I can do that job. Yeah. I'll do it for nothing. Jill Sobiel, it's so great to talk to you. Award-winning oh singer, gosh. songwriter, guitarist. Her most recent album is Nostalgia Kills. We're actually going out with Barbara Streisand, however. The second time around 